You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. USMCA. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Dara Lynn from ProPublica. Jane is in Australia. Uh, we're just going to do it one-on-one. Yeah, two-hander. It's going to be miraculous. Um, so we wanted to talk about Asumka. Asumka? Is that is that really how we're pronouncing it now? USMCA. I guess the alternative is just having the YMCA stuck in my head the whole episode, which I guess now it will be anyway. See, this is we're in different places in life, so I've been going with the B I N G O. Uh, oh, I like that. All right, we'll do that. Yeah, U S M C A. Anyway, <laughs> uh, this is the successor to NAFTA that uh, the Trump administration negotiated with the leaders of Mexico and Canada uh, quite some time ago, but which has been pending ratification in the United States Congress. Which in practice appears to mean renegotiation this time as a uh, negotiation between Democrats and Republicans. Right. Or at least between Democrats in Congress and the Trump administration. Let's put it that way. Yes, exactly. And so it's it's tied up to some extent with with House Democrats uh, and Donald Trump. And I want to get into the fact that Democrats thinking on this appears to be heavily shaped by ideas about electoral politics and the consequences of going forward with this or not. But I do want to bracket that right. a little bit and talk about the actual substance of this. When when this first came out, I think most of the commentary, some of it written by me, uh, but much of it written elsewhere, was making the point that relative to the rhetoric of NAFTA as like, the worst thing that ever happened, blah, 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 blah. USMCA's changes, like, they're really small, you know? Like, if your view was that doing NAFTA was a cataclysmic mistake. If the purpose of the USMCA is to undo the harms caused by NAFTA, which is certainly the reason that the trilateral negotiations started to begin with, it wasn't like NAFTA's time was up or anything like that. Trump went, we got to renegotiate this because it's a bad deal. Then... Those aren't the problems that are getting solved. We'll put it that way. Right, exactly. The the actual changes here are quite modest. But then I I realized looking back, okay, we shouldn't 
underplay it. They are still important, particularly if you happen to work in one of the impacted industries. And so there's a a couple things, right? Um, One is related to the automobile industry specifically, right? So there's two different provisions here. One is that right now, so there's, you know, free trade for cars across uh, U.S., Canada, Mexico, uh, but cars are made of car parts. And so right now, for like a car assembled in Mexico to qualify for NAFTA, it has to be made at least of 62.5% North American content. So under the agreement, that's going to be raised to 75% North American content. So Mexican auto assembly factories basically are going to need to import fewer Asian car parts uh, into the in practice. I mean, there, there's other things, but but that's the sort of main concern. And then there's a kind of weird uh, provision in which there's going to be a new minimum wage of $16 an hour in Mexico, but just for the auto industry. And only 40 to 45 percent of your workers need to make that minimum wage. I, I, I can't think exactly of a legal provision like that anywhere. It's a it's a it's a non-standard arrangement. But at any rate, the it's an effort to limit the extent to which automakers can save money by hiring lower paid Mexican factory workers. Right, right. The incentive is for auto companies to do one of two things. Either you can keep your production in Mexico, but you raise your workers' wages there, or you shift your production to Canada and the US where the minimum wage is high enough that it's going to clear this provision anyway. Right. Exactly. I have no idea why it's structured in exactly this way, um, 2023. And then there are a lot of questions around the enforceability of this, uh, which is always a thing when trade negotiations wind up having labor provisions. Well, especially because Mexico doesn't really have the viable labor sector that is, you know, generally both important in negotiating these kind of deals and in actually enforcing them. Like, one of the provisions in there that there are still very big questions about is a provision that requires Mexico to actually, you know, go through, you know, secret ballot union elections uh, or to, you know, over industries in, in a certain period of time. And there are serious concerns about whether Mexico is really committed to actually making that a thing rather than having these sham labor unions that have been stood up but don't actually reflect the sectoral bargaining power that you need to get these things Right. I mean, the, the legacy of the old PRA dictatorship in Mexico is that Mexico had a lot of I guess we would call in America company unions, yeah. although they were sort of like party company unions. Uh, but but they were basically like the labor organizing arm of the oligarchic government rather than independent uh, checks on, on companies. The, the, the PRI dictatorship sort of unraveled. It wasn't overthrown exactly. So these legacy institutions are kind of out there. They're supposed to reform to more of a U.S.-Canada style independent union sector. But that's the kind of thing that um, – I don't know, compliance with is murky. Um, so then the the other thing that this was like in the news constantly for a hot minute, but is that Trump got Canada to change its supply management rules for dairy, which means in practice, American farmers will be able to sell more milk there. Um, this is um, for fans of irony. Canada copied its dairy concessions from the Trans-Pacific Partnership that it had been prepared to make as part of a complicated multilateral log roll. Uh, they withdrew those concessions when we withdrew from TPP. They are now making them again um, in exchange for basically nothing in this case, uh, but just to get people to go along 
along. Um, and then there are intellectual property changes. Um, so right now, copyright term in the United States is the life of an author plus 70 years. Canada and Mexico are agreeing to match that instead of their existing life plus 50. What's driving a lot of the uh, lobbying on this is what's called biosimilar medications. This is, I don't understand the science exactly behind this enough, but most medications have micromolecules. Uh, some are called biologics, and they are based on living organisms. There's a slightly different intellectual property protocol for biologics. Um, the U.S. has a 12-year exclusivity period for the development of biologics before they face generic competition. Canada has eight years. Mexico has no rules about this at all. They have both agreed to raise up to 10. Um, so this is not important to regular people in America, uh, but it is very important to pharmaceutical companies who I think are the main drivers of the like, let's get USMCA done lobby in a sort of practical sense, um, even though the the politics of this is all, I mean, when Trump was running around saying, I shouldn't actually just put this on Trump. Like, Obama said we needed to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, Bernie Sanders denounced NAFTA at various times in his candidacies. Most congressional Democrats voted against it. Of course, Donald Trump denounced it. I don't think what anyone who enjoyed that anti-NAFTA rhetoric had in mind was that Canada isn't treating American pharmaceutical companies nicely enough in terms of their protecting them from uh, biosimilar generic competition. Uh, but like, that's one of the really big changes that's in here. Yeah, and although there is, it's worth noting that in theory, any of these could be altered as, you know, a condition of these continued negotiations between Democrats and Republicans. And in particular, the biosimilar stuff has been targeted in recent days as congressional Democrats have been meeting with the Trump administration pretty much constantly over the last couple of weeks to try to come to an agreement uh, this year that the biosimilar stuff has been targeted as a potential avenue for the Trump administration to, you know, make some concessions, reduce the amount of exclusivity time, get Democrats on board, as a, you know, by saying, oh, OK, we're not going to raise drug prices by as much by reducing this kind of competition. Which brings us to the question, the kind of two questions here of the politics of how this has gotten done and why it's getting crunched to this year. You know, the negotiation that's happened between Democrats and the Trump administration has not included congressional Republicans who, if you think about it, from one from one perspective, yes, the people who were saying scrapped NAFTA weren't saying we really want a higher degree of exclusivity protections on biosimilar pharmaceutical manufacturing. On the other hand, the things that we've been highlighting, you know, dairy farms, the automotive industry, these are the kinds of things that you could expect the Trump administration, given the populist rhetoric, to say, okay, we're going to insist on more favor for American producers in this, right. especially the automotive stuff, which has pretty clearly given some congressional Republicans a certain amount of resistance to, the, you know, a lack of enthusiasm for the deal. There's been some vocal dissent against the USMCA in Congress. It's possible that once a deal is negotiated, some congressional Republicans are going to say, this is not a free trade deal. This is more protectionist than what we have. We're going to vote against it. Uh, so that's a political concern that needs to exist. But at the same time, like, the Trump administration has been 
working with Nancy Pelosi, working with Sherrod Brown, working with some of the like auto unions to get this kind of thing, to get this to the table so the politics of it could be scrambled. There's that argument for Democrats to get on board. And then there's the timing argument, which is kind of the reason why we're talking about it now and the reason that they've been in constant negotiations as the year comes to a close. There's no official reason as far as like the timeline of how a trade deal gets negotiated that says that Congress has to vote on this by the end of the year. But the Trump administration said that it needed to be done by the end of 2019. And Nancy Pelosi and House leadership appear to have decided for their own reasons, that if it's going to get done, it needs to get done in 2019. The fact that even though this is right now by kind of Trump and his allies being pitched as a Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to help American workers, the fact that Trump and Pelosi have both, A, been kind of on the same page in terms of what needs to move to get this deal closer to a, like, happier pro-U.S. outcome, and also on the same page about the timing is an interesting conundrum that we should probably explore. Yeah, I mean, well, I I do just want to sort of get through what the implications of this going through Mm -hmm. would be in, like, concrete terms, right? I mean, I think, like, the clear winner here is the American dairy farmer, right? If you produce milk— or milk products. Like, this is a big win for you. If you consume milk or milk products in the United States, it's actually a minor law. You know, one of the weird things about trade deals, right, is, like, how do you score the wins and losses? So, like, this tallies up as a win for the United States and a concession made by Canada. Uh, But if you talk to people in the Canadian government at a a very deeply and profoundly off-the-record level, they don't think that Canada's dairy supply management system is a good idea. It makes dairy products expensive to benefit a small number of Quebecois dairy farmers. And they have been looking, the, the Canadian policy elite has been looking for a long time for a reason to make this concession to somebody. <laughs> what they really wanted to do was make this concession as part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership because there was so much on the table that they could then come back and be like, well, this is a huge win for Canada, right? And oh, well, we made this concession to the Americans. And then Trump ruined that right, by scrambling the deal. So then there was no reason to make the quote-unquote concession. Now they have a reason again. But you look at it, right, if you formally look at the scorecard, the Canadians don't have any wins on on this table at all. The reason they're settling for no wins is that they don't believe that it makes sense to artificially raise the price of dairy products in Canada. Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that, like, the alternative to USMCA at this point is not NAFTA, it is no deal. Well, possibly. I mean, yes, their official reason is the madman Trump was threatening to tear up NAFTA, and this is why we had to do it, to ensure the prosperity of the the North American economy. But just, like, part of the subtext here is that, like, they're, they're throwing these dairy farmers under the bus. And conversely, like, if you've ever heard that Wisconsin is important in presidential elections, um, they have a lot of dairy farmers there, and they're going to score a win, right? Then the auto provisions, though, are the opposite. I mean, that's the closest thing to what I think is, like, a common sense view of what renegotiating NAFTA would be about. Right. Just, like, rolling back the extent of the free trade. Like, there will still be right. international trade in automobiles and auto parts, but less after this. And so, on its face, you would expect some, like, gritty union Democrats to be like, yeah, we should do this, and Republicans to be like, hey, 
we're going to make cars more expensive for no good reason or, you know, as a giveaway to to big labor here. And for that matter, you would expect Mexico to be staunchly opposed and say this is going to deplete our auto industry, you know. Right. And and the Mexicans, I think, are concerned. You know, they don't – there was a lot of sort of push-pull on this. But so if you sort of – if you took partisan politics out of it, this is like – a thing that labor Democrats would want to do, a thing that I think normally, right, it's like, you know, I, I'm like live in a city. I'm like a left-wing urbanist. I have all kinds of unpopular anti-car opinions that would never sell in national politics, right? And this is like, yeah, they're going to make cars more expensive and transfer some of the surplus from that to like auto workers in the Midwest. So, you know, why not, right? right. I mean, I, you know, from like a free trader point of view, that's bad, but like also cars are bad. So this is like the, <laughs> the closest we can do to banning cars. Trump is a New York elite. Uh, yeah, he, Donald Trump, stealth urbanist. Yeah, exactly. He's an esoteric urbanist. Um, so, you know, it's all it's all to the good. But instead, this is tied up with the partisan politics of this. Well, and really the personal politics of Donald Trump. Right. Well, and in general, a big concern hanging over some Democrats' heads is they don't want to let Donald Trump say that he fixed NAFTA. And a concern hanging over other Democrats' heads is that they don't want Donald Trump to say that they're obstructing everything. So we should take a break and talk about the, the weirdness. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So what keeps happening in these stories is you hear centrist Democrats, mostly a lot of freshmen, a lot of the people who won red leading districts. I should say not all of them, but 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 a lot of them are like, we got to get this USMCA done so we can show that we can we can get things done. And then you have Nancy Pelosi simultaneously like endorsing the view that there's a huge rush on this, but also saying, well, but we can't pass it now. That's why we need to have these urgent negotiations. And then you have like a lot of other Democrats, like the bulk of the caucus, seemingly a little confused and like they don't know 
what game is being played here. Like, is Pelosi trying to make this not happen by continually raising objections so there have to be more negotiations? Is she trying to make it happen? Like, do the centrists actually want this to happen or do they just want to say they want it to happen? And like, how does this play into to the, the bigger politics of 2020? Right. Like the easy answer to give here would be to say, OK, we are committed to getting this deal done. So we're going to extend negotiations with the Trump administration as long as we have to. But that's like there is just this unspoken assumption on as far as I can tell all sides that to expect Congress to do anything in a presidential election year, much less a trade deal, is just such a laughable non-starter that if it doesn't get done by the end of this legislative year, it may as well be officially dead. There's not even a point in trying, which is obviously a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain extent. But also, if you think about TPP, not that nuts, right? Like, a lot of the problems with the ratification of the TPP deal were that it was trying to get done toward the end of Mm -hmm. the Obama administration in the context of, you know, a presidential campaign where not only Donald Trump, but also Hillary Clinton promised to walk away from the deal. You know, it's if the underlying political theory here, which I don't think is necessarily wrong, is presidential election years are really good for bashing existing trade deals. And then you have three out of four years to, you know, fix those problems, then like Donald Trump basically successfully did the spending the first two years of his term making the New Deal happen. And then the third year was supposed to be the window to get it ratified. And like either that, you know, either you get it done in that window or you don't. But that, of course, raises the question of, okay, why, if you genuinely think that trying to pass a trade deal in a presidential election year is going to hurt a Democratic candidate, or conversely, you think that your eventual nominee is going to have to come out against the trade deal and therefore you'll look bad if you pass it, why are you thinking about passing it to begin with? Well, right. I mean, what's odd about this is that it is such a, it's such a strange underlying package because You know, normally with a law, right, if you describe to me, here is a law and it raises taxes and it also spends money on social services, I could easily describe to you which sorts of members would favor that law and which ones would oppose it (laughs) based on their ideological stances. But this is a very ambiguous measure. Like if you decided that you wanted to oppose USMCA for whatever reason— It's really easy to come up with reasons. You could oppose it from either direction, right? Right. I could write you a speech in which you denounce USMCA as a pointless protectionist measure that's going to raise the cost of American automobiles in exchange for paying more for our cars and paying more for our milk. We're going to make Canadians pay more for their prescription drugs, and that's pointless. We shouldn't ratify this deal. At the same time— If you are a a trade skeptic and you want to oppose USMCA, I could write you a speech that's like, Donald Trump promised us that he was going to fix NAFTA. What he's come up with with his NAFTA 2.0 is like a Band-Aid on this huge bleeding sore on the American people. It's got no real enforceability of its labor protections. It's a giveaway to the pharmaceutical industry. It does nothing to stop the huge flow of products from China, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then conversely, you could do the opposite. Like, if you decide— You want to support the deal. You can make a protectionist case for it. It's going to help our auto workers. It's going to help our dairy farmers. Or you can make a free trader case for it, which is to say, like, this is what we need to settle the NAFTA debate, avoid the risk of the whole thing being torn up. And so it's like, 
choose your own adventure, right, in, in like a very weird way. And it's allowing members of Congress, I think, to sort of free associate with like what they think their partisan political imperatives are. So there are members who impeachment makes them nervous. And so they've decided they need to like counterbalance impeachment by showing that they are cooperative. And so they've decided they want to be for USMCA and, like, you can make up a case for it on the merits. Like, it's just, it's like, the deal, it's both a small change and some of the changes point in opposite directions. So, like, anyone can say whatever they want about it. So, and here's the other thing that's wild. You could also imagine an axis of supporter opposition for USMCA that is based on the kind of Donald Trump's idea of America's role in the world and, and in particular, like, the U.S.'s relationship with Mexico. And, you know, if you, if you were the kind of Democrat who wanted to steer this in a Donald Trump is a bad person yes. and not the person we want representing the U.S. on the world stage direction, in theory, you could go, this is yet more of the Trump administration's shakedown politics. They're trying to screw over Mexico to get a political win, yada, yada, yada. Based on what we've been talking about with the substance of this agreement, that's a plausible read of things. The problem with that, of course, is that not only is the Mexican government not saying, yeah, this isn't such a hot deal for us. We're concerned about our auto industry. We had to swallow this deal. They are really throwing a lot at getting it across the finish line. The chief trade negotiator for Mexico who will basically have to, you know, once it should Democrats and the Trump administration come up with a deal on USMCA, they'll then have to like go back to Canada and Mexico and talk it through. The negotiator for Mexico has basically said that given what they've been discussing so far, they would sign it sign off on it pretty quickly that they are, you know, enthusiastic about getting it out the door. The AMLO administration has made the entire rest of its U.S.-Mexico bilateral policy subordinate to getting the USMCA passed with obviously like a lot of migration policy that Mexico has adopted being an attempt to pacify the Trump administration and to a certain extent domestic political concerns, but those really aren't salient in Mexico in the same way that they are in the U.S. So you can't, if you're going to oppose the USMCA, you can't rely on Mexico as the reason to do it. And furthermore, the argument for, like, closer regional cooperation, that sort of thing, actually lies on the side of the Trump defenders on this one in a way that hasn't fully been exploited but is mooting, I think, some potential opposition. Right. Well, it's complicated and international because Democrats who— seem to not want to just sign on to this right away, have spent a fair amount of time now complaining about the prescription drug provisions. Yes. Which I think are genuinely quite very bad and very harmful. That said, it's not obvious that they're bad for Americans. Right. right? It's the kind of thing that it's very easy to say, oh— if the pharmaceutical industry is lobbying for it, that means we can rag on it as meaning higher drug prices. Right. So, it's, Which is something of a intellectual shortcut. From a global, you know, like cosmopolitan standpoint, raising prescription drug prices in Canada and Mexico is a bad thing to do. Now, in the context of American politics, I'm not sure that's a good 
there's like a good political reason to oppose something. It's a pretty good reason. But then you get into the paradox that the Mexican and Canadian governments have been saying they want Congress to ratify this deal, right? And I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, if we have any listeners in Canada, um, I, I feel like Canadian politicians and voters have been way too eager to swallow this deal, which I, I, looks to me to be quite bad for Canada, right? I, I mean, kind of want to— If, they, if, yeah. if Canadians want to reform their dairy supply management system, they can do that on their own unilaterally. I think they probably should, but there are some reasons not to do it. And this biologics thing is like— a terrible idea for them. And there have been these recent developments where because Democrats have been raising this as an objection, it's not totally clear to me if that's a good faith objection or not, but they said it. So then suddenly you had a Mexican negotiator, Deputy Foreign Minister Jesus Sede, was in uh, Canada, and he was like, oh, yeah, I hope we can reach yeah, a deal on this. Um, <laughs> That, to me, like, it is legitimately the weak point in this, right? Like, Trump said he wanted to crack open NAFTA and get some changes made. And he has persuaded Mexico and Canada to make a really painful concession on this prescription drug thing. But if you want to get a tough concession, you should want it to be something that's, like, beneficial to most Americans. And this is like, it's very bad for Mexicans and Canadians and doesn't actually help a typical American. But it doesn't make a lot of sense for like House Democrats to be the ones fighting on this. Like it really has to be Mexican and Canadian elected officials. And I feel like they got very rattled by like early Trump brinksmanship And so they were like, all right, like, this guy's nuts. Like, he might just flush NAFTA down the toilet, so we've got to throw him a bone. I now, in the fullness of time, like, I don't think that that's true. If this deal doesn't go through, right, if, you know, if if Trudeau gets cold feet and he's like, hey, I don't really want to, like, charge my people more money for prescription drugs. Like, I just, like, I don't think he's going to— He's going to shut down the North American auto industry. So this is interesting because I actually – I think I've come to a different conclusion. I think if you look at the last three years of Trump negotiations, there are two modal outcomes. One is that he takes credit for solving the problem, whether or not it was a problem before he decided it was a problem or created the problem. Um, regardless of whether there's any substantial change or whatever, there's a new coat of paint or something that he can claim as his, or he takes his ball and goes home and bl- and tweet something blaming everybody else. I think that given those two outcomes, if your goal is to minimally disrupt the North American economy, you want to push for the first outcome. And therefore, anything the U.S. government is coming to you and saying we need, you're like, fine, 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 let's just get this get this across the finish line. That puts Democrats in a singularly weak position because it means that they can't be representing you know, anyone else's, because anyone else's interests and there's this weird artificial timeline. But, you know, it does bring me back yet again to the question of if the concern is that the longer this gets drawn out, the less likely it is, why wouldn't you try to strengthen your hand by saying we will prolong these talks as long as necessary if you're House Democrats? What is the magic in saying either we get this done soon or we don't get it at all? And I just... You know, I think the other kind of piece of this puzzle that's been floating around the like commentariat sum is the fact that 
There's a limited number of days on the legislative calendar. There are a lot of questions about what the end stage of impeachment proceedings is going to look like. And there are also, like, other bills that House Democrats could be passing before everybody gives up and, like, turns their attention to the presidential election. And so the question of why is a lot of legislative oxygen being used on whether to hand Trump a victory on USMCA rather than, you know— pass a bunch of things out of the House that Democrats can then campaign on in their congressional elections in 2020 is, I think, a question that hasn't even been asked of House Democrats, let alone answered yet. Yes. But I will say, for my take, like, I think there is, like, too much galaxy-braining going on among all factions of House (laughs) Democrats on this, right? That's generally true. The idea, if you are, like, worried, if you're, like, in an R-plus-4 district and you're nervous that Trump's going to say, oh, Democrats are just obsessed with impeachment and they're not getting anything done, like, getting USMCA done is not going to change that. Like, at the same time, I I think this idea that, like, well, we don't want to let Trump have a victory is, like, that mentality has, like, poisoned American politics over the past 10 years in a really harmful way. And I think there's limited evidence for it. Um, Like, doing the First Step Act— like, yeah. interesting. For that reason, for whatever reason, that, like, got out of this toxic space. Yeah. Like, Democrats decided that the bill was, like, a pretty good bill that did some things that they thought were useful, and they did it. And, like, yeah, it, it was a win for I, Trump. Right. But it was, like, that's— I do wonder if so much of that was because the policy was so very baked in that— Democrats who were in the position of voting on the bill looked at it and recognized something that existed before Trump, which is right. not something you can say about USMCA. Right. I think the actual issue with USMCA is that it's hard to say if this is a good idea or not. Like, it's a very weird, very ambiguous package. And I think a lot of Democrats don't know what they think about trade in general, and they in particular don't know what they think about this legislation, uh, which is fine. I think it is completely reasonable and appropriate to have mixed feelings about this. I do myself. I find it uh, vexing. Um, but, like, actually, you should try to think about it, right? About, like, what, what do you what do you think about this bill? Mm-hmm. Um, because it would be dumb to have spiked the First Step Act out of some hazy concern that, like, it would be Donald a win Trump for Trump. Win, yeah. Especially because note that, like, Trump went, I, I was on John Gruber's podcast, the talk show, talking about this uh, last week. But, like, Donald Trump went to Austin, Texas for an event with Tim Cook in which he claimed that they were at the opening of a new factory that was (laughs) – Apple was manufacturing computers in the United States thanks to Trump's trade policies. And, like, none of that was true. The factory was open in 2013. Uh, But, like, Cook didn't correct Trump. You know, like, nothing about it being false prevented Trump from saying it. So there's nothing you're going to do on this legislation that's going to, like, stop Trump from going to different industrial facilities in the United States and asserting that his trade policy fixed them all? Or conversely, that his—that, you know, because Democrats didn't give him everything he wanted on everything, that everything is still bad and that you need to reelect him in order to really fix this. Right. So it's like you really ought to, like, think it through, right? Like, is this win for auto workers— Uh, worth the cost in your prescription drug policies? I think, like, maybe not, but also maybe. Um, I could also imagine different members of Congress just having different views based on who is in their 
district. Um, if you have an auto parts factory in your district or a dairy farm, this looks like a pretty good deal to me. I now if, want our next call to our next show to just be like a call-in hour for Democratic members of Congress. <laughs> but like, if and you, Canadians. But like, if you don't. You know, I mean, because I've heard some of these guys, right? So, like, Richard Neal, right, Ways and Means chairman, and he's— maybe right, he's one of the lead negotiators on this. Maybe there's dairy farms up there, but I don't think there are. Oh, Massachusetts yeah. college towns. Yeah. But there's definitely no auto factories. So, like, I don't know what he's so fired up about, about this deal. And a lot of these people, frankly, uh, you know, they are— um, a lot of the most gung-ho about USMCA are these sort of— you know, suburban winners, right, who who won uh, Sunbelt Suburbs districts. And, I mean, again, like, you know your district better than me, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that you are actually representing the people who win from this arrangement. So maybe come up with something else to do. Um, uh, uh, unless, you know, I don't know, maybe you've got a muffler factory in your district, then, you know, go for it. Um, but it's not really any of it, like, about the politics. It's about the actual changes here, which are just not that big. I think that in the Trump era, it's generally a mistake to assume that the uh, opposition or support for something is going to be mobilized based on the substance of the changes rather than based on the you know, polarizing personal politics of Donald John Trump. But. That is correct. <laughs> but right. I want to, I, I just, I want to make everything concrete and boring. No, uh, I understand that. But that's, but but to say, I, I think that there are two different, you know, respects here. One is that assuming that the politics of this, you know, if you're open to giving Trump a win, but you're not what's leading your considerations, then maybe you ought to be opening your mind to the substance and not just kind of flipping <laughs> a coin back and forth. And yet at the same time, if you're thinking about like, okay, I'm running for re-election, the fact of the matter is, and this this also cuts in terms of, okay, maybe look at the sub- substantive considerations because if your concern is, wow, if I vote against USMCA, there are going to be massive Chamber of Commerce ads, ad buys in my district, then consider the fact that if you vote in favor of the USMCA, if you oppose Donald Trump on, say, tax cuts, you'll get massive Chamber of Commerce ad buys in your home district in 2020. I'm not sure that this really is the thing on which anyone's 2020 re-election hinges. All right, let's take another break, talk about trigger warnings. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So this week's white paper uh, came out as a preprint about six months ago, but it's spicy enough that we're going to talk about it now. It's called Helping or Harming the Effect of Trigger Warnings on Individuals with Trauma Histories. And it's written by Peyton J. Jones, Benjamin W. Bellett, and Richard J. McNally. This is building on what appears to be a really rapidly expanding body of research on whether trigger warnings are effective. And Effective is a pretty—both trigger warning and effective are being defined in a much more limited way than the kind of sprawling discourse around trigger warnings and safe spaces and college campuses, et cetera, would have you believe. The research here is looking at specifically if you, before a potentially 
disturbing piece of content, like a passage of literature in this study. In other studies, they've used like film clips. If you before that provide a warning either as to the content of it or just say this could provoke reactions of anxiety, does that have an impact, either positive or negative, on how much anxiety people actually feel? And the original study here, which did get a certain amount of attention in the popular press, showed that not only were trigger warnings not effective in reducing anxiety, but that they actually increased anxiety among people who were given the trigger warning before seeing before being exposed to the content, especially in people who believed that words were inherently, or words had the potential to be greatly harmful to people's well-being. That finding has been undermined by subsequent research, including this study, which, among other things, tried to replicate it. It's found that the kind of broader anxiety effects of trigger warnings among a, a broad population are kind of ambiguous to non-existent. But what this study in particular did was look at people who have a self, who had a self-identified history of trauma, not just people who, you know, were either college students or generally who responded to a survey, but people who said that they had had something in their past that was a, you know, they, using a, a kind of conventional DSM definition of what constituted a trauma. And what they found is that among this population who are in theory supposed to be the people who are most directly served by trigger warnings because they're the ones who are supposed to be more sensitive and whose mental health needs are supposed to be, you know, put first, that those who got trigger warnings before disturbing pieces of content were in fact more anxious you know, in, in observing that and that they found that being exposed or having a trigger warning before a disturbing piece of content made respondents more likely to view what had happened to them, their trauma, as an important part of their identity, which the authors say is arguably counter-therapeutic because there is previous evidence that says that if you, you know, if you dwell more on your trauma, if you consider it to be more important to who you are as a person, you are more likely to exhibit PTSD symptoms. It doesn't go the other way, at, at least according to some research. That you know, it's not that if you have more severe PTSD, of course you'll see yourself as more. Uh, you'll see your trauma is more important. It's that if you intellectually see the trauma is more important, you are more likely to be sensitized. And so there is, from this study as well as from the broader body of research, some evidence that trigger warnings are counterproductive in that way. Certainly, this definitely builds upon a body of evidence suggesting that trigger warnings don't do what it says they'll do on the tin, if you will. They don't reduce the amount of anxiety that potentially sensitized people feel uh, when they're exposed to something that could be traumatic. But, you know, there's enough, there's enough here that either isn't replicated, isn't replicating previous studies, or is ambiguous in its effects that I think it's not necessarily going to, like, settle the question once and for all of when and where are trigger warnings appropriate. Yeah, I thought the, the sort of, you know, larger story that is told in this paper, um, which is interesting to those of us who've only seen the trigger warning discourse sort of sporadically, is that the habit of doing trigger warnings, right, it arose in a sort of informal internet discussion board context and migrated from there into the classroom. And 
you know, or from like real life organizing spaces to the internet to the college classroom. It's like it's it is it's kind of a it's it's a grassroots intervention that hasn't been empirically tested. Right. Is I think the, close the, to the way the, they put the, it. The, the, the authors are you know uh, psychology professors at at a prestigious university, and they are clearly annoyed that this has not gone through the. Uh, normal steps of a uh, treatment intervention, which is that you would propose the hypothesis that this would be helpful, and then you would attempt to test that hypothesis. And if you had evidence, right, for a medication, right, the FDA wants you to demonstrate in double-blind trials that the medication is safe and effective, and then you can use it on people. They don't just sort of, like, take a um, homebrew remedy that, like, some people say is good and then start giving it to people and then start doing studies as to whether or not that was a good idea, right? Um, and, you know, this is a, a a mental health concept that has spread through informal channels without a lot of study. And I think what they are saying here is that the evidence that it's counterproductive is a little ambiguous, but the evidence that it's actually helpful is, like, really lacking. Right. right? And you can kind and of it, tell a certain amount of frustration. I mean, okay, maybe not frustration. That may be reading too much into it. But you can tell that the authors of this paper are trying to pin down who exactly trigger warnings are supposed to help, right? First of all, they're focusing on trauma survivors because an argument that could be made about previous studies is that the point isn't whether everybody feels more anxiety. The point is, are these particular trauma survivors being helped? They furthermore focus on, you know, people who either meet clinical definitions of PTSD based on the symptoms that they report or who have— already received a diagnosis of PTSD, and they find that those don't necessarily have, you know, it's not it's not any more helpful for those people. So you can kind of see them saying, look, please identify the population who is supposed to be helped by this, and we'll study whether it helps them. But so far, we keep drilling down and drilling down and not finding the evidence here. I think that there's an alternative explanation that isn't, you know, that is is kind of goalpost shifting, but that has is what has kind of gained purchase in the broader discourse, which is that so, in some contexts it's being used as a mental health thing. In other contexts, it's being used as a matter of like basic etiquette. Like it is not a good idea to force people to deal with potentially traumatic things in public settings. That you, you know, that that being sensitive to mixed experiences means that it's just generally a good idea to, like, set boundaries and to, you know, and to not make it incumbent on an individual to be resilient and deal with their own trauma. And that is less responsive to empirical debunking. It's also... It's also not super compatible with the idea that, oh, the point here is to make it easier for trauma survivors. The point of the kind of etiquette argument is it's not trauma survivors' job to be swallowing hard and showing resilience. It's a collective duty that needs to be undertaken. And talking about the, you know, the sensitizing aspects of something is part of that collective duty. But this reminds me of, you know, the sort of latest thing flying around Twitter. I don't know, you know, Darren, now, now you're a serious investigator now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you don't, maybe you don't spend as much time with this, but you know, have you seen this, like, are you in the right headspace to receive information oh, man, that could hurt thing. you? Right? So there's a there's a sense coming from certain quarters. I, I don't know exactly what they are, right? But that, like, the rules of etiquette need to change in a variety of potentially drastic 
ways, right? Which is, as you say, like different from the like specific clinical case that providing trigger warnings in classroom settings will help trauma survivors in a like rigorous, empirically identifiable manner, right? To one that says that, I don't know what, but that just like the the basic norms of discourse that exist in our society are like not good and that everybody needs to be more kind of cautious and in an affirmative consent dynamic about information dissemination. And I don't I I don't even know. Like I, I'm not sure that like I've seen the explicit case for that being made. I've seen a lot of the knee-jerk like case against it. And it's true, you know, a lot of things in life are like it it's easy to be dismissive of people calling for different kinds of changes, but also like it's hard to persuade people to change how they conduct themselves. And usually you do need to be sort of clear as to why you are calling for that exactly and what you think it will achieve. And I mean, definitely, you know, the the point that this paper, it's not the explicit argument, but I mean, I think takeaway from it is that like, it's not totally clear what it is the trigger warnings, what the claim on their behalf is, right? And if you could get people to make a clear and unambiguous claim, then we could check if that's true. And if it's not true, we could try to come up with something else that would achieve that, right? Because the the original phenomenon, the sense that trauma survivors can have PTSD or other kinds of problems triggered, right? Like, that's not wrong. Right? Like, that's something all of us who've had problems in life are aware of, right? And there are, like, things that cause me to go, like, bawling in movie theaters that other people completely shrug off, right? Um, so, like, that that is bad. And I think it would be good to find a way to not trigger those kinds of reactions in right. people. And, and maybe there's also an argument for, like, opening up a another avenue of intervention that is, okay— in addition to talking about prevention and mitigation, let's talk about how to respond supportively and, you know, in in a maximally therapeutic way when these things happen. Right. But, I mean, basically, right, I mean, wh- one view of the world is that if you call into question anybody's proposed remedies for something, you are questioning the seriousness of the problem And the other is that taking a problem seriously means seriously asking whether these solutions are helping. Because if they're not helping, then we have to come up with something else. Right. I want to go back to the question of, like, the existing norms not working, though, because I think that – and this is an argument I've been making in various spaces for a ludicrously long time – that – What is happening isn't necessarily that people are saying the existing norms aren't working, but people looking at the status quo, which in a lot of ways in terms of scripts for how to engage with people you don't know all that well or conversely people you know very, very well and are reliant on, have kind of – there used to be a much more robust code for these things that was structured explicitly by race and class and gender Mm -hmm. and that that like governed how you were supposed to interact and also – objectively sucked for a lot of people. And so in tearing those down and not necessarily building an alternative back up, you're left with something of a no man's land in which it's not always easy to know how best to interact with another person or people with, you know, 
bad or self-centered intentions can't aren't necessarily being held in check by norms of polite society. So one answer to that is, okay, you build out a new model of etiquette that takes, you know, egalitarianism and explicitness as these very, as these core values. There are people to whom that doesn't appeal. There's, there's kind of a, a division that gets tossed around some in internet discourse between ask culture and guest culture. Uh-huh. You know, people who are who want every ask to be made of them explicitly, and people who think that that's like that that you know you can just kind of intuit what another person wants, and that that's the most helpful way to do things. And you know, the proponents of maximal explicitness tend to say there's no harm in doing this. It's much better to just, yeah, okay, you may think it's all unnecessary, but at least it's out there, whereas the tail risk of guest culture is much higher. The idea that trigger warnings are counter-effective and some of the research they're building on about like being reminded of your own trauma can be a counter-therapeutic move is actually suggesting that there is a tail risk to maximum explicitness, that it it might harm some people in healing. And so, you know, maybe there's, maybe the question here is, how can we tell which people are going to be better off if we are maximally explicit in our interactions with them? Because a lot of those, like, are you in the headspace to deal with this? Twitter takes were, this is what works for this particular relationship that I have developed for years with this particular person. You know, it it may not work for you, but but I really appreciate it being done for me. You know, how can you tell when something is that versus when reminding someone, you know, or or trying to be sensitive towards someone is likely to make them see themselves as a victim and make it harder for them to go th- about the rest of their lives? But you know, the other thing about this, right, is that if you look at like a, you know, a, an old-fashioned movie or book that's like a social satire of, of pre-World War I society, right? Everybody will understand that the elaborate rules of etiquette that govern social interactions a hundred years ago were not serving a real purpose other than as markers of class exclusion right? That they were arbitrary, but the point was that to perform in society, you had to master them all correctly. And that both a lower class person and even an upwardly mobile person might not have successfully mastered them. And so you could smoke out a nouveau riche versus a real member of the gentry based on their ability to really understand all these subtleties of, of social etiquette, right? Yep. Now we are in a much more forward-thinking era, right? But I think always a question to ask is whether these uh, elaborations that are supposed to be nominally the purpose of them is to be more sensitive to trauma survivors or to members of marginalized communities, things like that. Like, are they actually helping trauma survivors and members of marginalized communities or are they allowing people who have – Uh, high levels of education to demonstrate their mastery of these kinds of concepts and verbal formulas. You know what I mean? To to, to show off that that I know how to use— particular division because I do think that to the extent that a lot of this is coming out of young, like, young people who actually are from marginalized communities but who are in elite— educational and professional spaces like that it's not as easy to sort those people into one group or the other no i mean it's true it's it's difficult but i mean i do think that that's why a call for checking 
on the impacts of these things is valuable because, like, I just think it's it's not true that it's zero cost to create increasingly elaborate social structures. You know what I mean? Like, you can say, okay, complying has no cost, which is true. If you know how to do it, there's no there's no cost to doing it, right? And so I'm happy to go along with whatever you know, are, are like the hip things. Uh, and some of that, though, is like, I've got nothing better to do with my time than learn about what the latest thinking is on how you should address every <laughs> subject. You know what I mean? So, like, it's really, like, it's Other not— Other than canvas members of the Canadian government about— Sure. You know, the um, real views no, but, policy. you know, because, like, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm online all the time. Uh, I, I can read very quickly. I'm supposed to know what's up in society. Like, that's my job, right? But, like, there are lots of people, right, who are like— in their 50s, doing working-class occupations, perhaps members of marginalized communities. And, like, they're not, like, as well-equipped to, like, learn everything, right? And castigating people who don't master elaborate, rapidly changing codes of social behavior as engaged in some kind of serious misconduct is costly to those people. Right. And if you're going to, you know, if you're going to make a push for, well, they actually— just do need to get on board, we need to, you know, expend organizing and education efforts, then it makes sense to kind of firm up your toolkit and make sh- and make sure that the skills and concepts you're teaching are the ones that are going to have the biggest impact. Right, because if it's really important, then like, sure, right, you should try to get people to make these changes. But yeah, not if it's not actually helpful. And with that, you should make sure to, to treat you know, with with or without explicitness, you should make sure to treat your fellow humans with kindness and uh, respect, especially your fellow Weeds listeners. Oh, we should mention the Weeds will be live at the Sixth and I Synagogue on December 18th here in Washington, D.C. So if you live in the Washington, D.C. area, you should come see us. Tickets are for sale now. It's going to be great to see It you is all. so much better than going to whatever umpteenth holiday party you're going to have at that, exactly. that evening. Exactly. Fuck holiday parties. Uh, come see the Weeds. Um, it's going to be great. Okay. So thanks, Dara. Thanks to Malachi Brodus and Jackson Bierfeld uh, for engineering and producing this episode, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.